0: Are you ready to be connected? You're listening to the Insured Connection podcast by PICA Group, a pro assurance company, where we provide expert advice for your practice when you need
1: it most. We connect you with industry leaders to discuss timely topics so you can listen, learn, and get back to caring for your patients. Now, let's connect.
0: All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Insured Connection. Um, We have the honor of having Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman here on with me. Hello, Dr. Lehrman. Thanks for joining.
1: Hi, Dr. Ross. Nice to spend time with you and happy to be appearing on my first PICA podcast.
0: (laughs) Likewise, likewise. So I want to kind of dive into it, Um, you know, skin substitutes and, you know, obviously we're podiatrists, we deal a lot with wound care. You know, I wanted to to kind of ask you a couple of questions with respect to skin substitutes and specifically, you know, what if you could give some, you know, tips, quips and pearls about the documentation, you know, with respect to it, and then we'll jump into more questions.
1: So uh, the question you posed was about documentation for skin substitute application. And first of all, there's what we need from a clinical perspective and what we need to be a good doctor and create a good note for consistency of care should the patient go to another provider. And just what we learned in school about how to be a good doctor, of course. However, I think what most people are interested in who are listening to this is what do we need to satisfy the third-party payer. So the first question is, it should be, who is this patient's third-party payer? And does that third-party payer have a policy regarding skin substitute application? Do they have a published policy that I can reference? Some do and some do not. And one thing to caution people on is be careful with Medicare Because I see a lot of people ask, well, what's Medicare's rules about this? Or "What, what can I do for Medicare in this situation? And that's not the right question to ask because Medicare is a national program. However, it is administered on a local level by Medicare administrative contractors. And there are seven. Medicare administrative contractor. So it's not just, oh, this patient has Medicare, what's the Medicare rules, but rather this patient has Medicare, who is my (laughs) Medicare contractor in my state and what are their rules about this. And some Medicare contractors have a skin substitute local coverage determinations and others do not. And I'll I'll pause there because I fear I'm I'm going too long. Uh, (laughs) There are advantages and disadvantages to both. And we can talk about that more if you want.
0: Yeah. And for, I mean, our listeners, I mean, Dr. Lerman really brought up this great point, you know, an LCD or a local coverage determination, basically kind of the rules that we play this game by essentially. And just like you mentioned, if there isn't an LCD in that area, you know, that's a completely different subject, completely different ball game. But if they do have the rules and, you know, speak to the You know, I had a conversation with someone recently where they were trying to create templates, you know, for their medical records, but they had no idea what an LCD even was, you know. So do you think that it might be valuable to know the LCD even in creating your templates?
1: Have to. Absolutely have to. So I said before, there there's advantages and disadvantages, I think, to having an LCD or or even for a non-Medicare payer, a coverage. Policy, the I, I think the downside you might say when you do have one is it might be too restrictive and too many too many uh, hurdles to clear uh, and too many boxes to check and you say well my goodness by the time I have to have this and this and this and this I, I might not I might not ever find the right patient to clear all of those. However, on the other hand, the good thing is when you do have it, at least you know the game. And you know, if I have these, I'm making up this number, 13 boxes checked. I know that I'm perfect. And and like you said, in creating a documentation template, they've given us the answers to the test. They've we might not like it, but they've given we have the answer key. No joke, because when an auditor comes up and there is a cover, a published coverage policy. That's what they're checking against. And if we build our documentation to, of course, first be a good provider and be a good doctor and manage our risk from a clinical practice perspective, then if beyond that, if we build our documentation template to satisfy all of the things in the LCD, then we know we've checked every box and that's as close as we can get to bulletproof documentation and appropriately managing our risk and staying out of trouble.
0: Exactly. You know, it's interesting is because with skin substitutes, insurance carriers, as you know, kind of look at that as a big ticket item. So they also want to know about all the prior failed conservative treatment. You know, what are some of the big ones that you would you notate? Because that's not always being documented.
1: So one thing that is common and, and we could call it an umbrella for all services we provide is medical necessity. And I think some of us as providers don't like to hear that because we know why we're doing it. We learned in school why we're doing it. Why do we have to write out why we're doing it? Well, because we signed a contract to accept payment from a third party payer and they want the medical necessity documented, the why. And then to answer your question more directly in, in what I do, having communicated with medical directors, what they don't want to see is that it's being treated as a matter of course. Chronic wound gets a skin substitute. They want to see that there's some thought behind it. Like you said, in many cases, what's been attempted and failed and addressing all of the comorbid contributing conditions. And maybe addressing wasn't the right word, at least acknowledging, right? So as a lower extremity specialist, or even just as somebody who's treating the wound only, we might not be able to manage their hemoglobin A1C or nutrition or uh, uh, obesity, if that's playing a role, but we can certainly acknowledge it and talk to the patient about it and make appropriate referrals and communicate with other provider types who can have an impact on those things and to document that. So they want to see that we, as the wound care provider, this is not a podiatry thing Uh, as the wound care provider acknowledge There's a lot of other stuff going on here. And that if they, from their perspective, that they're going to pay for the skin substitute, like you said, big ticket item, they want to see that the provider us is giving it the best chance of success by acknowledging what else is going on. And then taking steps to address them or, or getting the patient the help they need from somebody else to address those things.
0: Absolutely. So, I know, I mean, there's a couple of cases that I had looked at that, I mean, you're right. It's not specific to podiatry. You know, it really is to all specialties. And they want to know, okay, what is the standard of care? How are you differentiating from, you know, your other colleagues, right? You know, and so I think that's kind of the part that we miss, you know. Um, with respect to, you know, residency, med school training, and then all of a sudden we get out and we practice. Um, So that's really, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Please say something. I know you have a comment about that because I know I have many.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we may not have learned that along the way, this need (laughs) to document medical necessity. And uh, there's no published data on number one reason for failure, but I can share anecdotally, just in my experience in, in defending and helping colleagues who do have trouble, the number one reason I see for failure for this service of skin substitute application is failure to demonstrate medical necessity. And the other thing that might make those listening to this feel better is the people that get into trouble, it is not because the auditor or the third-party payer representative reads our attempt to establish medical necessity and then says, nah, I don't think so. I'm not buying it. That's not what happens. If we make a reasonable attempt using our education and our training to tell the story and explain why this service is needed, most of the time or all of the time, if it's reasonable and it's something you could defend that's those are not the people that have trouble it's the ones again where instead it's just treated as a matter of course patient presents with here's the measurements skin substitute applied without the story right and and from the medical necessity standpoint i often think of it as we're selling it right we, we want the auditor the auditor who shows up who says okay i'm going to read this note and see if they established the medical necessity, we want them to get done reading and say, oh, I totally see why they did this.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So this kind of evolution of care from one note to the other, you know, I mean, we treat some sick patients, do we not? You know, and a lot of times they don't—they don't appreciate necessarily what we're treating, and we don't necessarily go into it because it's just another visit. But being able to say, "Hey, my at-risk diabetic neuropathic with a history of Charco, history of you know amputations," this is why I'm doing that. But you brought up a good point. You know, when you have you ever seen with um, with these cases that you're defending in that when they're trying to use skin substitutes, do these cases have you know underlying history of venous insufficiency, swelling? You know, can you speak to that specifically? Because it goes hand in hand, especially with leg ulcers.
1: Yes. And like you said, uh, the, the comorbid conditions, right? These people are sick. And going back to what I said earlier in communication with medical directors, they want to see that the underlying condition is being addressed. I, I pulled up one. I have it next to me here. Just one of the the Medicare contractors uh lcds for skin substitute application others have this also but it clearly says contributing diagnoses so in your example if it's venous leg that is very likely a situation where edema venous stasis is playing a role and they do not want to i mean not that i'm rooting for the bad guys but if you look at it from their perspective right i get it they don't want to pay for a product that has no shot to heal because we haven't addressed the cause right oh. we know compression is a gold standard of venous leg ulcer and almost nothing has a chance of working if we don't address that edema so yes that is a that is a very common one the one you chose venous leg ulcers and the importance of addressing what is contributing to the ulcer in addition to addressing the ulcer itself.
0: Right. So this is a question that's come up a lot. When I speak to physicians, they'll say, oh, well, I sent them to the wound care center and then they're in my office and the patient didn't want to have surgery because we're in times of COVID. And how do we document that? Because I mean, those are all valid points. You know, and a lot of these patients, I mean, they're not ideal surgical candidates, but how do we show that this is actually a really useful treatment for those particular patients?
1: You mean for the ones that that decline it for like we've so identified
0: Right. So those that actually are too sick to the go, to go to the OR. I should more I should more say
1: Yeah. So it's all about acknowledging that. And we don't you know we get sick of hearing document 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 but mm. it's all about acknowledging. And so many of these that go the wrong way is not necessarily because of a bad outcome but instead and we hear this phrase too often failure to recognize right if you've ever been in that room and it gets nasty it's doctor did you even consider you know doing this this and this and did it ever cross your mind to whatever so if it's documented in in that situation something along the lines of ideally We would do this, this, and this. However, in this situation, that's not appropriate because, or the patient wasn't comfortable because, and also documenting that we had the conversation, made them aware of the potential risks and benefits of this decision. They're allowed to make the decision to not go to surgery, but it is incumbent upon us to explain, okay, you, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, but It's important that you understand if we do not, this, this, and this could happen. And if that includes getting your leg cut off, that should be explained. And that conversation needs to be documented. It's not a bad bad outcomes happen. Juries know that. It's the failure to document our recognition and acknowledgement of what's going on and documenting that discussion. And sometimes... That template doesn't exist, and that's where providers get into trouble, where we want to click, 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 and yeah, we want to go fast, and we want to see more people, we want to stay on time, but this is part of the deal, and I would argue, and in my experience, if it requires slowing down and seeing two less people a day, you're going to be fine. Everybody's going to eat. Kids are going to have what they need for school or whatever's going on in your life that you need to that you're responsible for, but you're going to likely better manage your risk. And man, when bad stuff happens, if it hasn't happened to you yet, you will have wished that you took that extra time to, to slow down and get in the note what needs to be there. And no, that shouldn't happen over the weekend. It should happen during business hours. And if that requires seeing two less people a day and that allows you to get it done, I encourage you to do it.
0: Absolutely. So you bring up a good point. You know, if if let's say something bad happens, you know, you get involved in an overpayment, you know, because I had I I had actually a young practitioner ask me, well, the insurance company paid for it. So automatically a lot of providers, you know, they will assume, oh, OK, well, then I did everything right. Right. And they don't hear anything until maybe a year, two years with Medicare, sometimes longer. And now they're asking for their money back. Can you speak to that? Because that seems to be the general understanding. They paid me, so it must be right.
1: Yeah, this is a crazy system we function in. Most of these insurance companies are really bad at their jobs. Mm -hmm. They pay. We submit the claim. They pay for it. And the trouble doesn't most of the time doesn't happen up front. It happens later and sometimes years later. And most of us sign these provider agreements without reading them. And even if you do read it, most of them are going to say we have the right to look back X years later and go after money that we think was inappropriately paid. So, Dr. Ross, you said it. The fact that we got paid means nothing, nothing. And in so much of the education I provide, I have colleagues say i've been doing that for 10 years what are you talking about i get paid it doesn't mean anything all it means is you might have to write a bigger check and these these insurance companies have no problem writing a page and a half long black and white letter as if it's nothing and the last paragraph is given all the above please send the check for five hundred and sixty thousand dollars." As if they're asking you to pay a toll to go over a bridge for 75 cents. There's
0: 30 days.
1: <laughs> and you have 30 days to do it. What? <laughs> and that's because they paid for however many years and then they go back and look at it. And the, the one other thing I want to say about this is, and not rooting for the bad guys. I, we None of us want to see more of this happen, but given their success rate when they do go after us, I'd like to whisper when I say this, I don't know why they don't do it more. And please, if you're listening to this, don't make the mistake of saying, I've never heard of that happening to anybody. And I have lots of friends in this profession. It happens. It's what we are doing on this end of it every day. And I see those letters and it it's terrible. And just because you may have not heard of it happen, it happens. It is terrible happening and you don't want it to be you
0: it's so true i had to sit in a meeting you know with a medical director for one of the insurance carriers and agreed with everything that i said but said they signed the policy right they (laughs) they signed the policy they over they owe over a million dollars you know let's see how much less oh yeah
1: the provider agreement that's what you mean
0: The provider agreement, the provider agreement, you know, and it was, you know, a lot of times these skin substitutes. So one thing that, you know, you brought, you brought up there was, I know every physician has seen vendors coming into the offices or trying to have meetings with them on such or meeting them at conferences and they'll give you the codes. And can you speak to that? Because they, they say that they even have their company check it for you. And it seems
1: foolproof, but it's not. No, uh, uh, the the best I can say is um, I would suggest. Right, what are they experts in? That they should be experts in their product and which growth factors it has, and how to use it, and on label and off label and stuff like that. And it 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 is so important to get information from the appropriate source, right? To get. E- any information from the appropriate source. If you want to know uh, what to do clinically, that should come from peer-reviewed literature. If you want to know what growth factors are in the product, you can talk to the medical science liaison for the company, right? Who's, who's a PhD smart person who, who uh, is obligated to, to provide the, the science Uh, From an unbiased standpoint, if you go to one of these shows that the medical science liaison isn't even allowed to be in the same part of the booth, right? Right. They're like they're in a different part of the booth in the back because they're not selling. And if you want coding information, it should come from a coding expert. And there are coding certifications where, you know, just like if you somebody wanted to have a surgery, they might say, I want my surgeon to be board certified okay, that's fair. And if you want coding information, you might want that information to come from somebody with a coding certification. And you might also want that information to come from somebody who doesn't stand to make or lose money based on what you do with a product. (laughs) So I I don't want to say across the board, don't listen to reps when it comes to coding stuff, because sometimes they have sourced the information appropriately. But I can say across the board, be careful on where it's coming from, right? Mm -hmm. And who has a conflict of interest in in providing this information and knowing the source of the information Mm -hmm. and knowing where it's coming from. And too many people do get into trouble from saying, well, the rep said I can do this. All right. Well, what was the source of that information?
0: Right. Right. That's funny that you say that because I hear that on a regular basis, the rep told me that I could, right? you know, now yeah. that also gets to, I mean, that gets to another point, you know, one thing that's been coming up that's been really popular now is using, you know, in skin substitutes as well as these, you know, flowables, these injectables, you know, for amniotics, you know, and actually using them for musculoskeletal conditions versus using them for diabetic conditions, you know, because there's a big difference. So, yeah. what are your so thoughts I, on
1: that? Yeah, I flipped to, uh, I I'm, I'm have my CPT book here and we're not on video, but I flipped to. So, the first is using something flowable for, uh, for wound, mm-hmm. right? So, when it comes to skin substitute, and I know you said musculoskeletal, we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. When it comes to skin substitute application for wound, Listen to this sentence, those that are listening to this. I am reading directly from the 2022 CPT book. This is from the book. These skin substitute codes are not to be reported for application of non-graft non-graft wound dressing such as gel, powder, ointment, foam, liquid or injected skin substitutes. So that's that's not even a payer That's not a, that's CPT. We can't even use the code. So the flowable products out for wound, we can't use the code, but now musculoskeletal that goes in a whole different direction, right? So we have these injectable amniotic products for musculoskeletal conditions. First thing is check with the payer. Do they have a published policy on it? And if they do follow the policy, if not, it defaults to medical necessity. And the one thing I would caution people on is what is the product's intended use? And th- that's the magic phrase right there, intended use. When these pro- these products have codes, right? They have Q codes. When when the manufacturer goes to get the Q code, that's HICPIX, HCPCS, H-C-P-C-S, Picks. There's a Picks panel meeting that happens. Now it's twice a year. They go to the meeting, they apply for a code. And when the code is granted, it is granted with... An intended use. Some of these amniotic flowables have intended use that includes wound only. Some have intended use that includes wound and musculoskeletal conditions. So I would suggest that you be careful and know what is the intended use of the product I'm shooting into people. That's a medical risk management concern. If something goes wrong, And uh, an administrative coding and payment risk management concern. Because the third-party payer might take exception to you shooting something into a joint that doesn't have an intended use to be (laughs) injected into the joint. And then when using the appropriate product, very important to establish medical necessity. It's the same story as Skin Substitute. Telling the story of why we're using this fancier more expensive product, and from the third-party payer's perspective, they're thinking, well, why not just shoot steroid into it, right? They right. This, These are doctors. They might be thinking, uh, we've been shooting plantar fascia. This was steroid for decades. We're doing fine. Why do we need this fancy stuff? So often it's what's already been attempted and failed, the degree to which this pathology is impacting the patient's life, and some of that can be templated. Some of it cannot. So it's telling the story of why We're using this. What has already been attempted and failed? And like I said before, selling it to the auditor or the third-party payer representative so that when they are looking for medical necessity and they read the note, they come away saying, oh, I see why we needed this.
0: Dr. Lerman, thank you so much. This was valuable information. I know everybody listening to this was entertained as well as educated. So I appreciate it. And thank you.
1: Thanks for having me. This was fun. And that's it for this week's episode, but let's continue connecting. If you're enjoying the Insured Connection, don't forget to leave a review on your streaming platform and subscribe now so you can connect with us each time we post a new episode. To stay connected with us throughout the week and to tell us topics we should discuss on future episodes, go to picagroup.com forward slash Insured Connection.